This morning, I am delighted to have with us Randy Newman, who is our preacher this morning. Randy has been a worker with Campus Crusade for Christ for over three decades. And in that ministry, God gave him many opportunities in sharing the gospel and equipping other Christians in, order, in, equipping other Christians in how to share their faith. Many of those ideas that he had and conversations he had developed into two books that he wrote, actually two books that I've got with me. He's in the process of writing his fourth book. And uh, the two books I have with me are Questioning Evangelism, which is focused on how to share the gospel the way that Jesus did, and also another book called Bringing the Gospel Home, which focuses on how to share uh, the truth and the hope and the love and the peace of Jesus with our family members, oftentimes the most difficult conversations that we sometimes have or sometimes our most difficult contexts or people for us to talk to. After three decades with Campus Crusade for Christ, he is now working at, with the C.S. Lewis Institute. He is a senior fellow with them. If you're interested in that, there is a, one of their newsletters is out on the table in the back. These are free. You can pick up a copy of those, um, which has articles about how you as an individual can not only learn more about your faith, but also share that with, our, with your coworkers and with your surroundings, making the faith credible and understandable to those with whom you encounter. But Randy's real passion is not only helping people to know the life-transforming truth of Jesus, but it is really helping the people of God know how to communicate these truths with those in your life. Is that for people who are in professional ministries such as myself, my workday is spent with a great team of people in the church office, um, hopefully all of whom know Jesus. No, I'm confident that they do. But people that want to come to church guess what? They come to church. And people that don't want to come to church are doing other things at this time on Sunday mornings. And instead, what God has done is he has taken you as the people of God, and he has scattered you throughout all levels of society, throughout all areas of this community, throughout a whole wide range of sports teams, and it is not an accident that God has put you where he has put you. And he has put you there to help other people know the joy, the hope, and the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. And so Randy's passion is to help the people of God, such as yourself, to communicate these truths in a way that's understandable, in a way that helps people know who Jesus is. But the real reason why you should listen to him this morning is not because of the things that he has done, but the real reason why you should listen to him is because he's a man whose God's spirit has changed and in whom the word of God is at work and we hope this morning that through his preaching, that word will be at work in you as well. Let us pray and set this time apart. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit into our midst this morning. As we have set this time apart, Lord, we ask that you would use it to change our hearts. That you would bear fruit through the word that is preached. And Lord, that you would turn that in our lives into something beautiful, something glorious, and something that is life-giving to the relationships in which you have put us. We ask that you would do this for the honor of your name, we pray. Amen. Thanks. Well, it's a great delight to be with you, and it's always a, a wonderful surprise every single time that God gives me an opportunity to talk to people about outreach, because I'm not one of those bold evangelists that you may have heard of, or maybe you are one of those. But I'm pretty sure that the vast majority of Christians are not these bold evangelists. So um, I, I think it's almost comical that God uses me to encourage fellow evangelistic chickens 
Um, when, I, when I joined the C.S. Lewis Institute staff, they asked me if I wanted business cards that said um, senior teaching fellow. I thought that sounded so impressive. I said more accurate would be senior evangelistic chicken, but they, they didn't go for that. So I worked for an evangelistic organization, Campus Crusade, for many years, and most of the time I felt guilty. Um, not just because I come from a Jewish background, but, yeah, there's a lot in there. So, but, uh, um, uh, but, but we would always hear from these people who would get up front and talk about how easy it was for them to evangelize, how every day it was. And I remember one guy squinting and saying, I cannot sleep at night unless I've witnessed to one person each day. And I thought, I'm sleeping just fine, buddy. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Ay, ay, ay. So, um, so let me tell you a story that has, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this whole thing of how do we reach out. Just something that happened uh, not too long ago. Um, I live right outside Washington, D.C., so I was on the metro, the, uh, the subway system there going into downtown. And um, if you've ever ridden metro or you, you know much about it, it it's, it's a pretty quiet experience other than the person announcing where the next stop is coming. People don't talk on the Washington Metro. They read their Washington Post or some document they're gonna be presenting at some important meeting or they're wearing earbuds and listening to something, but it's a kind of a non-verbal experience. And so uh, I was sitting pretty close to the door and we stopped at a place and the doors opened up and uh, a bunch of people came in. And right as the train took off, this man who had just come in announced in a very loud voice, may I have your attention please? So he got our attention because people don't do that ever. And, um, and it didn't hurt that uh, outside in the stations there were signs all over that the security level had just been raised to orange, which means go home. But um, so, uh, so uh, and, and just to make the thing just a little heightened, he announced, may I have your attention please? And then the woman sitting right next to me, right across that little small aisle, started screaming, no, no, stop. Everybody on the train was doing what I was doing, looking at her. I thought we are going to be on the 11 o'clock news. He reached into his pocket, pulled out a book, opened it and began to sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Everybody sighed a sigh of relief. They rolled their eyes. They went back to their Washington Post. They put their earbuds back in. Except the woman next to me, who continued to scream, Stop! Shut up! It was the oddest duet I've ever heard. <laughs> this is my story! No, it's not! <laughs> Did you know that hymn has four verses? Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> why do I tell that? I'm, uh, we, we could probably talk about the effectiveness of that particular style of outreach. That's not my point. Um, my guess is the vast majority of you will never do that. And my guess is that more and more and more of us know people in our lives like this woman who would like to tell us to shut up. How do non-evangelists proclaim the good news in a world that is becoming less open to it? How do, how do evangelistic chickens proclaim the best news ever possibly announced? Well, the short answer is with a whole lot of tensions, plural. Um, the longer answer is this sermon. <laughs> uh, 
Um, four tensions I want to look at in the book of Colossians, in particular this passage uh, toward the end of the book of Colossians in chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, if you'd open up to look at Colossians 4, I'll set it with just telling you a little bit about Colossians. It's a book about the greatness of Jesus, the supremacy of the Messiah, that Jesus isn't just a rabbi and a good teacher. He's God in the flesh. God took on human form and became a person and lived and then died a sacrificial death so that mere mortals, people, could know this God, could be reconciled to God. And it's, it's one of the loftiest passages in all of the Bible about how great Jesus is. He's God. In him, all things were made. All things were made by him and for him. Everything that exists was created for the purpose of pointing to Jesus. It's astounding. It's mind-boggling. It's also a great book about who we are if, in fact, we have become Christians, if we are in Christ. In chapter 2, it says, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him we have been made complete. And so then Paul talks about how this works itself out in different ways in our lives, how it affects the way we see ourselves, how we interact with uh, people in the body of Christ, how we interact with people in our families. And then in chapter 4 now, in this passage, beginning in verse 2, it's how does this make a difference with outsiders, people on the other side, on the outside of our faith. So let me read Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of, of Christ on account, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which, I ought to, which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Four tensions that we live with as we live out our faith in our world today. The first is the tension or the duality of prayer and proclamation. We pray to God about people and then we talk to people about God. We see that this whole enterprise of outreach is this beautiful intersection of what people do in very natural human interactive ways. We ask questions, we listen, we express concern, we explain things, we answer questions, and we're asking God to do what only he can do, open up blind eyes, soften hardened hearts, raise people from the dead. Uh, when, whenever anybody becomes a Christian, it's an absolute miracle. It's totally astounding. But it, it happens at this intersection of what people do and what God does. And so we pray and we ask God. You see it in this text. He says to devote yourselves to prayer or to continue steadfastly in prayer. Don't quit. Um, now, I just think it's interesting how often in the Bible we're told not to lose heart or not quit in, in prayer. Here it's continue steadfastly. Um, in a, several of Jesus' parables, he told parables about people continuing to knock on doors and to continue to ask. Keep on asking. There's so many uh, repeats of keep doing it, it must be easy to quit, right? If there's one thing I've learned about prayer is it's easy to lose heart. It's easy to fall into, I don't think this is making any difference. 
I'm spending time in a physical world, in a physical body, talking to an invisible God about things that I can't see. Is this making any difference? So it's easy to give up uh, diligence or devotedness or to continue steadfastly. But Paul gives us a couple of uh, encouragements to help us. He tells us to be watchful and to be thankful. Um, I think the, the watchfulness is as we pray and then we watch to see how God is answering. And you can start to see things that you weren't paying attention to before if you are watchful. Maybe even more helpful is about being thankful, keeping track of a record of of kind of a written journal of prayer requests that you prayed and when and how God answered them. I find that if, if I don't do that, and I ebb and flow with my practice of that, but if I don't, I forget that I've even prayed things. And then I don't notice that God has indeed answered a whole lot of them. And so I lose heart. It, but when I see a written record of here are the requests and the dates and here's when God answered, then I am more motivated to keep going on the places that don't have an answer yet. And that is especially true with praying for people to come to faith, people that we care about, that we love, that we've been praying, some of us, for decades. It is easy to lose heart, but if we're watchful and thankful, that can encourage us. So that's prayer. There's a whole lot in this passage about proclamation. There's, there's what we're asking God to do, and then we're asking that we would open up our mouths. You know, I, I have to be honest with you and tell you, I, I resist praying for outsiders because I'm pretty sure God will answer. And then I'll have to say something. You recall my earlier comment about evangelistic chicken. So... Very often, as I'm praying for them, I'm also praying for me. Lord, would you give me a boldness that is beyond explanation? Would you give me a concern for them even though I don't naturally like them? That was uncomfortable, wasn't it? <laughs> Some of you nodded yes, and I won't point you out. But um, So, there's a tension of prayer and proclamation. Second one, there's a tension of words and deeds. We say things, but we also do things. There's a lot about words in this passage. Did you see it? Pray that God would open up a door for the word. That's words. That we would declare it. You declare words. He, he asks in verse 4 that uh, prayer that he would proclaim it clearly, that I might make it clear. So there must be some words that aren't good to use because they obscure things. They don't make it clear. Um, he says in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious. There must be some kinds of words that aren't gracious. So there's a whole lot about words, but there's also about deeds in verse 5, or how we, how we act. Conduct yourselves with wisdom. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. So there, there are things that we do that either back up our message or tear down our message. And what we want is for the two of them to work together. Now, some of you may have heard uh, sometimes people debate which one's, which one's more important, the words or the deeds. I think this is kind of a silly debate because one without the other is not good no matter which way you go. Words without deeds, well, then people just dismiss our words. Deeds without words, they won't connect our deeds to the gospel. You may have even seen uh, there's a slogan or a poster or maybe even seen it on a T-shirt. Uh, there's a quote that some people have. Uh, um, uh, Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Have you seen this? Have you heard this? I, I won't ask you if you like it. I don't like it. Um, it's always necessary to use words. 
Now, you must always attach words to your actions, otherwise people won't attach your actions to the gospel. By the way, some people say that's a quote of Francis of Assisi, and um, I've done some research because that's what senior teaching fellows do. Um, uh, we're, we're nerds, and so I do research. And um, uh, I don't think Francis ever said that. In fact, I think we have quotes of Francis saying, make sure that your actions back up your words. Yes, amen. Um, uh, I, Francis was a very loud and bold evangelist. We have, we have written complaints of people complaining how loud he was. <laughs> I find that encouraging. So, um, um, so what we need is we need some people close enough in a, in a small group or in a one-on-one accountability relationship, a brother or a sister in Christ, close enough to be able to tell us when our actions are not backing up our words. Um, even, even our facial expression and our tone of voice. We need people close enough to say, listen, I, I know you really care about your neighbor and you're, you're trying to reach out to him and I think that's great and I think what you told him was great, but the way you told it to me, I, it, you sound mean, sound angry. I, I don't think that's consistent with our message of a God who reaches out to lost people in grace and mercy. So what we need is um, this, we need both words and deeds. By the way, let me press this a little further. Um, sometimes people say, well, you know, if, we're just, if we just love people, if we just care for them, if we just are kind to them, they'll see Jesus in us. Well, sometimes, yes, and that, that is true, sometimes, not always. Um, most of the time, people won't connect your actions to the specific message of the cross. Here, let me... Um, let's say you have brand new neighbors who move into the house next door to you and you want to welcome them to the neighborhood so you bake chocolate chip cookies and you bring them a plate of chocolate chip cookies. Very nice. It's good. I like this. I'm in favor of this. Here's what will not happen. They will not say, I know why they brought us those cookies. After you left, you walk out of the door. I see why they did this. See, they must know that God is holy and righteous, but they have rebelled against him, and there's a great gap separating them. It's not as if God's arm is so short that he can't save, but their sins have made a separation between them and their God. But God, in his mercy and his grace, he took on flesh and died in an atoning death, a propitiation, as it were. They won't do that. No matter how good the cookies are. They'll think you're a vegetarian or you do some kind of exercise that relaxes stress or something. I doubt very much they'll connect it to the shed blood of Jesus on behalf of sinful people. So sooner or later, we have to find words to say to them or point them to a website that explains things or give them something to read, a book or a booklet. Yes, it needs words. So we have this tension of words and deeds. Third tension is a tension of grace and salt. I hope you see it there in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. What does that mean? And by the way, that last phrase, so that you may know how to answer each person, means it's probably going to be different with different people. With some people, you might have to emphasize more of this aspect about God's holiness and his righteousness. For other people, it's more about his grace and his mercy. For some people, it's how in the world can he be both? Doesn't that create a tension? So how, our words need to be grace and salt. The, the, the gracious part, I think, we get. We, we need to express the gospel message in a way that people say, ooh, that sounds good. That, that, that's good news. Tell me more. But there also has to be an element of salt in it that 
is a surprise or it stimulates thirst or it's, it's got a little sting to it. It's, it's not what they were expecting. I think a whole lot of people in our society today think they already know where the Christian message is. They think it's ridiculous or irrelevant. Please, no more. So we've got to find ways to say things that are, oh, I, didn't, I hadn't thought of it that way. And the, there, there also is this aspect of bad news before it's good news. If the, gospel, if the way we proclaim it is all just, well, God loves you, God loves you, well, great. Okay, sure. Why wouldn't he? I think that's what a lot of people think. Well, I've, ever since I was a child, I've been told I have positive self-esteem and I believe in myself. And so, God, lo- of course, God loves me. So we have to find out a way to also talk about a separation that has come because of our rebellion against God. Here, um, here's a couple of examples. One is, um, I've learned a great deal about understanding this from Tim Keller. I see that you have some of his books out in your bookshelf out there. Um, uh, When he first moved to New York City, he was meeting a whole lot of very sophisticated secular New Yorkers who wanted to know who this new preacher was in town and what kind of what kind of preacher are you? And uh, a frequent question he got is, "You're not one of those. You're not one of those literalists who who believe in hell, do you? You don't believe there's you know fire." And so he was trying to figure out how how does he answer that so it doesn't immediately just shut down the conversation, because he does believe in hell, but if you just answer the question, well, yep, I'm one of those, then that's the end of the conversation. So he, he started saying to people, he said, you know, well, yeah, all that stuff about in the Bible about hell and fire, I think you probably could interpret it as a kind of metaphor. And people went, oh, good, you're not one of those crazy idiots. And then he would say, and if it is a metaphor, I think it's a metaphor for something far worse than fire. I think that's grace and salt. Here, let me give a, a story from my experience. Um, I've reached the stage of life now where I'm having an increasing number of witnessing opportunities to people in the medical professions. Yeah, good. You got it, yes. Several years ago, I had a lot of opportunities to talk to people who specialized in spines, lots of back problems and seeing lots of doctors who, and eventually I had to have surgery and it worked, praise the Lord. But it was a lot, of, a lot of meeting, a lot of different a- a- aspects of this uh, world. And uh, at one point, I was seeing um, a, a, an anesthesiologist and uh, an assistant, a nurse, who um, they give you shots in your spine. I know, it's horrible, doesn't it? It sounds terrible. It was. And um, they give you three of them. Uh, you get one, and then two weeks later, you come back for another, and two weeks later, you come back, and, then, and it works for a month. And then, yeah, okay. So... Um, but so you get to know the same people, and hey, Mr. Newman, how are you doing? And they're always, you know, upbeat and cheery, and I'm thinking, I'm going to die. And um, so, and they like to strike up conversation with you as they're about to do something painful. They, they call it speech anesthesia. It doesn't work. And so, um, you know, Mr. Newman, what kind of, uh, what kind of work do you do? <laughs> I work for a crusade. I mean, that didn't work. It wasn't good, so... And, you know, they give you a pillow to hunch over, and the doctor's behind you with this needle, and the nurse has got her hand on your shoulder, and, you know, you're not going to die, and I think, how do you know? And um, so, so, so at one point, the doctor and nurse get into this dialogue about, oh, you're, you're into religious stuff. Well, you know, I once went to church when I was young, and boy, all they did was they talked about hell. All they did, rules, don't dance or you go to hell, don't drink or you're going to go to hell, if you smoke, you're going to go to hell, and, 
And then the nurse says, oh, yeah, I used to go to one of those. I think it's ridiculous. And, and, and then the doctor says, well, Mr. Newman, what do you think about that? I'll tell you exactly what I thought. I thought, not now. <laughs> I don't really want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk to Jesus. Jesus, keep me alive. <laughs> so, I, so I bought myself some time. I said, you know, I'd, I'd really like to talk about this, but I'm a little preoccupied. And they went, oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Like I was reminding them what they're supposed to be concentrating on. So I, I sat there, and uh, they have to stay around and watch and, and stay in the room to make sure that you don't die. And so, you know, about 15 minutes later, so, Mr. Newman, what do, you, what do you think about all that, about, you know, all those rules? You know, do this, do this, don't do this. So I had time to think, and I said, well, you know, I think... Um, I think we like rules because if we keep them, we feel really good about ourselves. And if we know people who don't keep them, then we can feel bad about them, which makes us feel good about ourselves. I said, but you know, the stuff I need forgiveness for is a whole lot worse than any of those things on those lists. Stuff I need forgiveness for is things like anger and bitterness and judgmentalism and, and, and even hatred. And, and their eyes are getting bigger and bigger, like I'm this horrible person. And I thought, I'm just getting started. <laughs> it's a whole lot worse. Now, it, isn't it, if we're really honest? If we're really honest about what's inside um, before a holy, righteous God, it's really horrible. It's stuff that is so bad that we can't fix it. It's sin that is so horrible that it needs a cross. That's how bad it is. And so I, I said to this doctor and nurse, I said, I, I said I, the stuff I need forgiveness for is a whole lot worse than the stuff on those lists. And that's what I love about Christianity. I have forgiveness for that kind of stuff. And, and they were listening and I, I, don't, I don't really know what they thought totally. Um, in a strange way, I'm delighted to tell you I haven't seen them. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, I have prayed for them, though. And I've prayed that that idea would be both grace and salt. Isn't that wonderful that there's that kind of forgiveness? Isn't it horrible how bad the stuff that we need forgiveness for we need to find ways to surprise people or to say it in a different way so that the good news of our message is better than they could have ever imagined and that the bad news is far worse than they ever dared to admit. One more tension. So prayer and proclamation, words and deeds, grace and salt, one more. There is a tension of reception and rejection. Some people receive our message. Some people tell us to shut up. Um, some people in this city that this book of Colossians was written to, some of these people received it. That's why we have a book of Colossians. We wouldn't even have this book if some people didn't respond. Paul reminds them back in chapter 1, he says, all over the world this gospel is producing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. So we have all sorts of evidence in the New Testament and in history that some people respond. The very fact that we're here this morning means a whole bunch of us have responded. But in the passage that I read, that in chapter 4, it says that Paul is in prison. He got thrown in jail for preaching the gospel several times. 
we know that it eventually cost him his life. He was executed because he wouldn't stop preaching. Everywhere the gospel has gone for 2,000 years, some people say, this is wonderful, and tell me more. And other people say, you keep saying that stuff and you're going to be fired, or worse. Uh, Everywhere Jesus went, that was the response, right? Some people said, he's the Messiah. We'll drop our fishing nets. We'll follow him anywhere. Other people said, he's demon-possessed. Let's throw him off a cliff. And that's the reality. Now, also the reality is there are a whole bunch of people who say, no, 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 no. And then years later, something kicks in and they do respond. I've done enough talking to people, hearing their stories, of hearing how for many years it was, no, 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 shut up. And then at some point something changed or they suddenly had ears to hear. I remember talking to one young woman who told me about how um, she became a Christian when she was in high school, high school youth group activity. She heard the gospel. She responded. She went home and told her parents, who were not believers, not believers in anything, really, just non-religious, and no, 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 no. And, And for years, she and her sister, who had become Christians, gave books and and movies and, and all sorts of things, and nothing worked, nothing. Decades later, when her father was retired now in his 80s, living in a retirement home all by himself, kind of a recluse, um, uh, some people started knocking on his door and inviting him to church. No, 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 I don't do that stuff. No, my daughters, they're religious. I don't go to church. But they kept persisting. They kept inviting. And so um, I, they, they invited him to church on Easter. And he said, well, Easter, sure, I guess if you're going to go, that's probably the time to go. And he goes and he hears this message about Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead and paying for sins and, and, and welcoming in sinners if you repent, if you trust in him. And he walked forward and he gave his life to the Lord. He became a Christian and he called his daughter that afternoon. You know what he said? He said, you never told me he rose from the dead. Uh, she said, yes, I did. I had told him so many times. I had sent him, I sent him a book with evidence for the resurrection. Nothing worked. But God in his timing is sometimes not working according to our timing. But for the people who do respond, for the people who hear this message and it's good news, it, it's the most wonderful news in the world. Um, let, let me just throw, um, when I was in high school, I, I grew up in a Jewish family, so I didn't hear the gospel message, um, but I, I met some friends in high school who, who challenged me to think about things and gave me a copy of the New Testament. Um, I didn't read it until three and a half years later, and I didn't respond until four years later. Sometime in the early stage, though, I was working at my father's gas station, and um, some man uh, pulled in, this is this is uh, several hundred years ago, back when people came out and pumped gas for you. Can you imagine? Read about it in the history books. Uh, Google it. Um, so I was one of those guys who came out, and I'm pumping gas, and I'm looking in the back of this guy's car, and he's got all of these magazines about Jesus. And I'm just looking, you know, like this. So when the guy g- gives me money to pay for his gas, um, he hands me money and one of these magazines, And I went inside and read that thing from cover to cover. And it was when it was beginning to, oh, I see what Christians believe. Now, I'm telling you, it was at least four years later, maybe five years, before things started clicking. But that was, now, I think, that was a very significant moment in my life. 
I didn't realize it at the time. And I have no idea who that man was. I didn't, I didn't even see his face. I only saw his arm. <laughs> I have this bizarre vi- idea of meeting him in heaven, you know, and wait a minute, wait, yeah, that's you, hey. Uh, <laughs> so, let's pray and ask God to use us. Let's pray for them and pray for us. Let's ask God to give us wisdom about words and deeds, grace and salt, perseverance, even if it doesn't seem like anything's happening. And who knows? There may be people who hear this news and they'll want to sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Isn't that wonderful? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the people that you place in our lives who don't know you. Would you work in their lives to make them hungry for the gospel? Would you give them a holy dissatisfaction with the way things are going? And would you give us a a compassion for them, a, a, a concern for their soul, and would you use us in this absolutely amazing, mysterious process of them moving from darkness to light? Because you work that way in, in our lives. Would you use us as, as your people to proclaim your message in this world? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.